Are you still mixing station gas and oil for your string trimmer, leaf blower, or chainsaw? Eliminate the mess and the guesswork with True Fuel, the original pre-mixed two-cycle fuel. True Fuel is ethanol-free and precision-engineered for small engines, improving performance, and extending the life of your outdoor power equipment. And True Fuel is available for both two- and four-cycle engines. Empower your equipment with True Fuel. Available at your local home and garden center today. Introducing the SD Podcast channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, the Beauty Production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 31. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, we said we'd be back pretty early after episode 30. We're taking off again. And not much as far as... We're going to talk about, instead of the NFL a lot, we're going to talk about the NBA. We haven't spoken about them since LeBron be signed or was a free agent, pretty much. And I want to kick you right off with LeBron, because you can't talk about the NBA without talking about LeBron James. So his tender has begun with the Lakers. They've started off 7-6, and six, and they've won 5 out of the last 6 after a really slow start. LeBron's averaging 26.4 points, 7.8 rebounds, 7.1 assists, but... You know, we didn't expect them to be undefeated and start the season off 13-0, but where do you view the Lakers start this season? You know, when it comes to the Lakers, I think they're right on par with what I expected, at least. You know, this team, like you said, they're not going to be 13-0, but they were also going to be 0-13. I didn't expect them to be winless either, not when you have a guy like LeBron James, uh, and they have a lot of talented youngsters, too. So to me, they're right on par with where they should be. They're a 500-team you know, LeBron, a lot of people are saying that he started off slow. But again, when you have a guy like LeBron James, he's not, you know, he's getting up there with age. But he's also a guy that understands that you can ball out in the month of September and October and November. But what really matters is what you do towards the second half of the season, come playoff time and whatnot. But I still think for the Lakers, the main goal is to get to the playoffs in some way and just try and give these guys more experience. And, you know, you and I both know the Lakers still have a ton of money going into the next offseason. So, and Magic Johnson has kept guaranteeing that he's going to sign another star. Remember, he keeps promising he's going to bring in two stars. LeBron James was the first star. So for me, it's hard to expect anything monumental from this season for the Lakers when I know they have so much cap space going into next offseason. They're going to try and push hard for another superstar, whether it's Kawhi Leonard, Kevin, Kevin Durant, or Jimmy Butler, they're going to try and bring in another star. So to me, it's hard to, you know, to expect more from the Lakers this season because to me, it's all about next year. I think this year is about LeBron James getting acclimated with LA, getting the fans on, you know, the relationship between the fans and LeBron on track, but also LeBron developing the LeBron culture when it comes to the Lakers, you know. LeBron can be very picky in a good way with how he likes things, how he likes his teams to play. And I think this is the season that's all about LeBron like planting his seeds, 
helping Lonzo Ball get better, taking Brandon Ingram under his wing, helping Josh Hart, helping Kyle Kuzma. I think LeBron is trying to establish a culture this season first before they really take off next season. I mean, that's this is why they brought in veterans like Michael Beasley, Lance Stevenson, John Rondo, Tyson Chandler became available. They went and got him. He's been a huge impact on this team that doesn't really have a true center. Um, so I think that was a good signing by the Lakers. But to me, again, it's hard to expect them to go out there and, like you said, go 13-0 or hang with the Warriors when, to me, this season is all about establishing the culture, get these kids ready, get them some more experience playing with LeBron. That way, come next season, they sign this other free agent, another megastar, and they're good to go to compete for a championship. When it came to LeBron James, we stopped looking about regular season standings. And I think that's one thing that stood out last season. Being first in the Eastern Conference didn't matter for LeBron James. Because he still wound up being the road team and beating Boston and getting to the finals. Just as we expected him to do so. And I do agree with you, Jose. There shouldn't be expectations for them to get to the Western Conference, uh, to get to the finals this season. I think they're going to run into the Warriors at some point in the playoffs, and that's just going to be too much for them to run into. But if you're looking at it as far as so far for this season, I, I think fans should be more than excited. I, clearly, there's a lot of one-year deals, like you've named a bunch of the players that aren't the young guys like Brandon Ingram or Lonzo Ball or Kyle Kuzman who are more of the future with LeBron James, but there are a lot of guys on one-year contracts because of the plan for next season, because of the plan to get more star power with LeBron James. But just look at the teams they've played, right? They're 7-6. and six. They started out 0-3. All right, so if we look at that in their last 10 games, they're 7-3, and three. but let's dig it a little bit deeper. Of their last four losses, which includes... That one of their losses in their 0-3 start. You know, a lot of these are within four-point games. Three out of the four games are decided by four or less points. I, I think if you're looking at that, that's, that's huge right there. Not only are they winning games, they're losing very close. Uh, the Lakers may not be there to that point where we're considering them as contenders for a championship, but they're there to compete with every single team on any given night. And I think that's because of the team that they built around them. They built around these guys that go out there and fight and play real tough and possibly spit in your face a little bit. But that's what they built this team around of Lance and Stevenson, Rajon Rondo. But they're also young guys that are learning. Young guys that are finally in a season to compete. Young guys that are finally in a season where it's like, hey, we have to step up our damn because the greatest player of all time is on our team right now. So I think this is the perfect mix. And you're looking at these first 13 games, you have to be all but excited if you're fans, if you're Magic Johnson, if you're Luke Walton. Maybe there's always a little bit of a hot seat for whoever the coach is for LeBron. But even the players in general. This, you couldn't ask for a better start not just by standing-wise, but just overall performance, because even the games that they're losing, they're losing very close, decided by just a couple baskets, and there's going to be a lot more games where they're going to win. Because one of the things that stands out to me 
is LeBron James three-pointers. He's only averaging 31%, which is almost 5% less than he's averaged the last couple seasons. You'd have to go to this is like his third or fourth worst of all time uh, that he's played in his career at three-point percentage. So you know that number is just going to improve. You know the shot's going to be there for him. And it's just, you know, those extra couple baskets can be all the difference in the game. I'm, if I'm a Lakers fan, and I kind of am, uh, this is a this is a phenomenal start for the Lakers. Seven sits standing wise, that's okay. You know, with LeBron James, you get into the playoffs. But overall, on the way this team is playing, that's what you have to be uh, excited for. Sitting with the Western Conference, Draymond Green uh, was suspended last night in the win against the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, why? Well, you have to go to the previous night in the final moments, which I'm sure if you've turned on SportsCenter over the last like 24 hours, you definitely have seen it. He's arguing with Durant on the bench right before overtime. The two are in a heated debate. Green didn't give Durant the ball. He didn't even give him the, the rebound. And for a chance to win the game against the Hawks in regular uh, in the fourth quarter, instead the game goes to, uh, sorry against the Clippers, Game goes to overtime, and the Clippers wind up beating the Warriors. Uh, again, was it, this is a team that we expect to win at all. This is a team that's 12-3 and three to start off the season. But should we be concerned for the Warriors right now with this chemistry issues? Or even further along in the future, Durant has a player option at the end of the season. Is arguments and fights like this a concern of Durant re, uh, resigning as well? Honestly, you know, we have to stop pretending like this isn't something that we've seen before. Uh, I don't know if it was last year or the year before. Remember when Durant and and Draymond Green got into it as well, too? This is going to happen over a course of a season, especially when you have four stars like the Warriors do. I know they're a very selfless team, but sometimes selfish signs are going to show up. So whether it's Durant or Draymond Green arguing for the ball or who shouldn't have gotten the ball, whatever. Egos are going to clash. It's just how it is, especially when you play in a very talented basketball team where the expectations are very high, where, again, like you said, we expect them to win it all. This is a team that holds themselves to a high standard. And honestly, I'm not worried one bit. This is a team that it's like, you know, Clay Thompson said, once we win a couple of games, we're going to forget about it. We're not going to remember this argument in February at the All-Star break when both of these guys make the All-Star team. We're not going to be talking about this argument when it's April and the playoffs are starting and the Warriors have swept through the first two rounds of whoever they're facing. And we're probably not going to talk about it if the Warriors win it all and, you know, they're holding up their, what, fourth NBA championship in the last, like, five years. This is just a blip on the radar for a team like this. It's going to happen. These guys are grown men. Egos are going to get in the way, you know. Again, it's the it's the heat in a moment. Obviously, it was a chance to win the game, and then they go on to lose the game, which makes it even worse. So yeah, it looks bad, but honestly, I don't expect anything to come of this. And as far as Kevin Durant's team option, though, you know, that to me, it, it is a little bit problematic because we don't know what he's going to do with that option. I firmly believe that Kevin Durant will test free agency, whether it's re-signing with the Warriors or whatnot. Kevin Durant has also made it very clear, though, that he kind of wants to get paid. And again, I'm not going to bash somebody for publicly admitting that, hey, you know, I want that contract I never got. I never got that max contract that I deserve for my skill set. So if Kevin Durant wants to chase that money, sure. There's no reason why the Warriors can't give him that money, though. They're going to have a couple of cap space 
this year, whether it's losing either Clay Thompson or Kevin Durant, if you know if either one of them doesn't want to take a pay cut. So I think one of these big guys on this team is leaving the Warriors in this coming offseason. But I don't think it's going to be determined based off something like this. Again, I think this is something that probably happens more often than we think. Uh, you know, we're not in the clubhouse every day to see it. Tensions run high. And I think when it happens on TV, it gets magnified. And obviously now everybody's talking about it because everybody likes to point out the flaws of the Warriors. Everybody wants to see the Warriors crumble. But at the end of the day, I'm going to quote the great Clay Thompson on this. And what was Clay Thompson slowly becoming one of my favorite athletes ever? It's going to be in the past or they're going to put it behind them like a ponytail or whatever he said the other day. Honestly, one of the greatest things I ever think I heard anyone say. But I don't think this is going to be a problem going forward. If Kevin Durant does leave Golden State, it's not going to be because of this argument with Draymond Green. Now, for the Warriors, this isn't anything new. Kerr was talking about, after they won the championship, how it was a real struggle in the locker room with everybody and team chemistry and just overall. And we're two weeks into this season, we're seeing the same problems. That, to me, is a problem. It's not a problem for this season, because at the end of the day, no matter how much Draymond Green or Kevin Durant or eventually DeMarcus Cousins all play together and all, you know, all egos collide and it's certainly going to collide, they're going to win, like you said. And it's going to make it a little bit easier. But I think it's going to make it a little bit easier to say, hey, this isn't worth it. It was fun the first season when it was easy, and it was easy to get along with everybody, and it was just enjoyable, and I was just the enemy, and we all were united because of that. I don't think Kevin Durant's going to feel that way. And I don't know if money or comfortability, but there's something always about Kevin Durant that you just don't know. And I think each time this occurs, it's almost like another reason to believe he's not going to sign with the Warriors. They, they have a lot of question marks when it comes to Nets offseason. He's going to be the biggest one. Team chemistry is going to be fine when guys like Curry come back who's the team leader of it, and will really take over control. But until that, like, you know, it's a free-for-all at times, and we saw it clear as day. It is a complete free-for-all. When DeMarcus Cousins is really the peace negotiator, that's when you know it's problems. I think that's that's the key of it all. You know, it's going to stand out. And I think there's going to be a lot of questions when it comes to the future of Kevin Durant. He's going to use his player option. He's not going to stay on a one-year deal. Nobody should on that, even if he's making 30 or $31 million, He's clearly worth a way more than that, and he has all different options. And it's not like he's been unknown to go to an enemy side and really give, you know, the finger to pass teammates to play for somebody else for a better winner. And I'm not saying there's a better winner right now than the Warriors team, but he certainly has that history behind him. 
So I wouldn't be shocked if he leaves the Warriors and just every argument, every fight, every team chemistry question mark, I think is just another reason to believe Kevin Durant will not be a Warrior after this season. Going into the Eastern Conference, there was a big trade, obviously, in the last few days, and we finally have a chance to discuss it. Jimmy Butler traded to the 76ers. You knew he was probably getting traded some point during the season. Really should have been traded maybe before the season even started. But Jimmy Butler traded from the Timberwolves to the 76ers. Robert Torvington, Daro Sartic, if I'm saying either one of those names right, <laughs> it's a win for me. If I get one of two, it's still, you know, 50%. It's a great batting average. Uh, but what was it? Did the Wolves get enough for Jimmy Butler? Honestly, I don't think so. Dario Saric, if that's how you say it, I think I'm more accurate probably than you are. I'll, I'll take your... <laughs> <laughs> he, to me, he's a low-key, really good player. Um, he definitely helped me in fantasy basketball a couple of years back when I had no idea who he was. I picked him up randomly. He actually went on a good run for the 76ers. But to me, he was a good role player for the 76ers. Robert Covington uh, was like a three-point specialist. And, you know, they get the se- what, was it, a second round pick they ended up getting at the end, too? Yep, second round pick. Yeah, no so first. second, you know, no first round pick. And, we you know, we're, we're basing this off of, you know, sep- you know, Tom Thibodeau being criticized because he was trying to get a first round pick out of a lot of other teams. Uh, you know, there was a talk about the Miami Heat, you know, Pat Riley being appalled for what um, Tom Thibodeau was asking for Jimmy Butler. The bottom line is, is that the Timberwolves needed to get rid of Butler. It was a toxic situation. They had no leverage. You know, you want to talk about drama. I think the Timberwolves drama was 10 times worse than the Warriors drama is now um, with Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, and Jimmy Butler. Um, so to me, the Timberwolves needed to get Butler off the team. And whether Butler was sitting out on purpose, whether he was hurt or not, the problem is, is even Kevin Garnett said it, it's not pretty up there, although he used more explicit words than that. It wasn't a pretty situation in Minnesota. They needed to move on. And again, I don't think they got a lot back for him. But, you know, mission accomplished in terms of getting rid of Jimmy Butler. Now, on the flip side, if you're Philadelphia, you should be ecstatic. You didn't have to give up Markel Fultz, who I think still has a lot of promise. You didn't have to give up any first-round picks. And you get a guy like Jimmy Butler to pair up with guys like Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, who Embiid is having a wonderful start to the 2018 season he already notched his first career triple double tonight you know it's just funny to change the dynamic for jimmy butler and why i'm excited for jimmy butler too because jimmy butler criticized andrew wiggins and carl anthony towns for being complacent in minnesota he said these are kids that are just satisfied with being here he he criticized for timberwolves for not being hungry enough well in philadelphia i think it's the complete opposite i think you have joel Embiid who's begging for success who's hungry for success, And you have someone like Ben Simmons, who's so talented. I think the 76ers is a really young and hungry team who's very energetic. And you add someone like Jimmy Butler, who wanted that from the Timberwolves and didn't get it. I think that you, the 76ers are really going to be trending upward now, adding a veteran like Jimmy Butler to add two young, uh, young and hungry stars like Embiid and Simmons. They didn't give up a lot. They didn't give up a lot of, you know, role players on their team to get Jimmy Butler. So I think this is a great pickup for the 76ers, a great fit for Jimmy Butler, at least this season. We can talk about what he does next season later on when the offseason approaches. But for right now, this is the best shot for Butler to maximize two other great players around him 
what was supposed to happen in Minnesota, which will now probably happen in Philadelphia, in my opinion. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. Uh, Jimmy Butler played in his first game. They lost a 106 to 111 to the Magic. But overall, this is going to be a strong unit, and it's just going to take a little bit of time. You know, how many times does, when we saw the Heat, have their bid three in their first game? They lost. It, there's so often times when it's like the first game of a bunch of guys trying to coexist, trying to play together. It just doesn't match, and that's expected. It's it's not easy to get on stride with other guys that you've never played with before. Uh, so, and I think Jimmy Butler, he's going to fit fine with this team. He brings another. He brings a shooter, something Ben Simmons really is not. Uh, so I think that's an added bonus, right there. I think he brings a little bit less pressure, and you know, on a young team that really has struggled against the Celtics for the past year plus, it can almost be a for real moment for them. It's almost like, hey, you know, now we're really for real. Now we're able to compete with them. And it's only going to be a matter of time before they start putting up a lot more wins. We already know that they were going to put up wins without when it was just Simmons and Embiid. And now that they added Butler, you expect even more. Uh, but it was, my question to you is also, do you view the 76ers now the best team in the Eastern Conference? So it's funny. Even though I just spent, what, the past five minutes gassing up the 76ers, I still see them as the third best team in the Eastern Conference. To me, third. I think, yeah, third. I think, you know, I, I, see, I can't tell now if you think they should be lower or, or higher. But <laughs> I think I'm going to go with lower. But first, let me, let me get this out. I think they're the third best team because in my eyes, you know, when Toronto got Kawhi Leonard, I know a lot of people made fun of them for it. A lot of people called them dirty for getting rid of DeRozan like that, and they thought they were dumb because Leonard's not going to re-sign there. But for the time being, adding Leonard to a team like that, this is a really great defensive basketball team. Not only is Lowry and Leonard going to put points on the board, but like guys like Leonard and Ibaka can really lock down players on defense for the Toronto Raptors. They're playing at a really high level, as I expected them to. And even though the Celtics are underperforming, and we'll get to them in a second— um, I still think talent-wise, they're better than the 76ers. They're just loaded one through five in their order. You know, they're better than Philadelphia. Um, so I think even though Philadelphia, don't get me wrong, they're going to be a fun team to watch going forward. Adding Jimmy Butler definitely helps them. Um, I still see them as the third best team in the Eastern Conference. Uh, I, I'm just going to say, like, I viewed them as like second or third, like, both of them automatically behind Boston, but really on par with Toronto or slightly above Toronto. Uh, Toronto has this thing of like really struggling to get past the second round or uh, just win playoff games if LeBron James is involved. But if you considered them third behind Toronto before the start of the season, and now the third best team in the Eastern Conference, adds Jimmy Butler, and that's not enough to push him to second? At least? Uh, I'm going to give him second. You know, I I still put Boston ahead, uh, frankly, because, you know, Boston was able to beat a lot of teams without even needing guys like Kyrie Irving or Gordon Hayward, and you expect Boston to be in the same pace as uh, 
you know, 76ers, a little bit more of having to come together, a little bit more of, like, Gordon Hayward's playing, like, slow to begin, trying to just, you know, work him into games, get him into game shape a little bit more. But overall, when it comes to the playoffs, Boston will be good to go, and you expect Boston to easily be the top team at that point, whether they are in the standings or not. I think a little bit of their slow start was because of playing a lot of teams in the Western Conference, but the 76ers right now, they're second. They're not, I don't want to name the top team. I'm still going to give it to Boston uh, just because of how well Boston has done against the 76ers. There's no reason to give the 76ers the top spot, but I mean, overall, on talent-wise, 76ers have the second-best team in the Eastern Conference. I don't think it's close at this point. I, I, I don't put them ahead of, I don't put Toronto in the same class, uh, even with Kawhi Leonard. Also, I, I think this is important because this was a big trade, but I don't think this should be considered the last big trade we see. And I'm going to name a big name, or at least what I think is still kind of a big name. But that's John Wall. The Washington Wizards, they won tonight. They kept the crap out of the Cavaliers. It was like a minus 900 money line. Like, Nick, Allenson. you um, and I and three other Joe Schmoes from the local convenience store can beat the Cleveland Cavaliers in the 5-on-5. Five five. Just don't ask, you know... Uh, what's it, the Charlotte Hornets to do so uh, when they missed 20-something threes to start off a game. Uh, I'm not that good of a three-point shooter. I think I could have had a better three-point percentage than what they shot last night. Uh, but Wizards are 5-9 and nine to start the season. John Wall is a free agent at the end of the season. The Wizards have to make a choice, which is give a very, very large contract to John Wall is after all the years he's played with the Wizards, it's just going to wind up into this huge contract. Or do you trade John Wall? And if you're the Wizards, what are you deciding right now? Well, it's funny because, you know, going into the season, LeBron James leads the Eastern Conference. All these teams are excited because they have a shot, right? And I include the Wizards on that list, you know, going into the year too. You still have John Wall. You still have Bradley Beal. You know, this is still a decent team that could either be a fourth or fifth seed in the Eastern Conference, but they've played like crap. I mean, they have flat out looked terrible, you know, this season. And it doesn't look like they're going to turn it around anytime soon. I could see Scott Brooks possibly getting fired at some point this season or the end of the year, and it's well-deserved because they are playing like crap. And I think you bring up a good point in John Wall. Now, my question is, you have to ask yourself if you're Washington, is this a simple fix? Or is it going to be a complete rebuild? And I think if you, and I think this too, I think this could be a simple fix for Washington. You re-sign John Wall at the end of the year. You sign maybe another player if you have the cap space. You build through the draft and you keep this thing going. Because I do think it is a simple fix. However, going into next offseason, there's quite a few teams who have a lot of room in the cap space and could use a point guard. So my question is, not where do John Wall's loyalties lie? Because I think John Law, John Wall is a pretty loyal guy. Remember, he tried to get Kevin Durant to come to D.C. He tried to get a series of other players to come to D.C. as well, too. I think John Wall would sign with the Wizards in a contract extension. But my question is, how desperate are other teams going to be and maybe pay him more than what the Wizards can pay him? Because if you're telling me if the Knicks can't get Jimmy Butler 
and they can't get Kyrie Irving, and they can't get Kevin Durant. You don't think the New York Knicks are going to be knocking on John Wall's door asking, hey, you want to come play in New York? We need a point guard. You can play with Chris Porzingis. You can play with a young Kevin Knox, and we'll throw all this money at you, and all of a sudden New York is a lot more attractive place to John Wall than Washington is. So if I'm the Wizards, you know, honestly, although I would like to re-sign Wall, I would trade John Wall if the trade was right. If you can get a good value back for John Wall, then I make the trade because I'm just afraid there's going to be a lot of other teams that are going to be throwing money at John Wall that really need a point guard as well too come this offseason. This is an easy decision because you have to just look back on a couple of years ago and it's what did the Sacramento Kings do with DeMarcus Cousins? They traded him. They knew that if they tried to resign him, it was going to cost them way, way, way more money than any other team. And they decided it wasn't worth that value. They decided it was easier to trade them, trade away their best player, their only good player, and to try and start all over. And for the Washington Wizards, take note, do the exact same thing. First off, I don't even know if the Wizards will lose less games without Wall. Because it seems like every year when Wall gets injured, which he always does, the Wizards actually do better without him. So if that's point A as we go to like seasons prior, you know, you, you do better without him. But even if to say that you'll do worse, you're right now, if you're Washington after two weeks into the season, ranked one of the five or six worst records in the NBA. Play for that first pick. I know it's going to be real tough to lose that, have that number one option with the Cleveland Cavaliers, but it's still much better odds now than it was prior to try and get that first pick, to try and be in those top spots, to try and get one of the dude's three stars. This is the easiest choice. And going into like further into Washington, all right. Since John Wall, 2010, the Wizards made the playoffs four, uh, four times, four of the last five years. Three of which they've gotten out of the first round, but they've never gotten past the second round. Even if you go all the way back since 1998, uh, 20 years, only eight times have they made the playoffs. Only four times have they gotten to the second round. The other four eliminated immediately. The four that they got to the second round eliminated once they got there. There's no change. There's no. There's no. Oh, we're we're going to get there this year because you're not. There are way better teams in the Eastern Conference right now, even with LeBron James gone. This is an easy trade decision because you don't want to pay more money for a guy where you can get better. And I'm not saying you have to sell the entire team. Keep Bradley Beal. The Wizards didn't want to trade Bradley Veal for Jimmy Butler. But you know what they should trade? They should trade John Wall because whatever they get for him, whether it's a first-round pick, whether it's young pieces, like the, when the Pelicans shipped off young pieces to the Kings, and now look at where the Kings are doing, and now look at the progress they're having, the Wizards have to take the exact same approach right now. It's a perfect opportunity. And don't do it too far into the season. This is the perfect time where it's like, hey, if we lose out and we're in the top five in the draft and even higher in the draft, perfect. 
Yeah, which team has stood out to you right now to start off the season? Your biggest surprise team. And I think I know which one it is. I think it's close by you. But, Jose, who is your big surprise? My biggest surprise team is my hometown, Brooklyn Nets. Nick, if you would have told me that Brooklyn would just be two games under 500, I would have called you crazy. And let alone, they're currently, if the playoffs ended today, they are the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference, which means they make the playoffs. Now, I know they'd probably get blown out in the first round by whoever in a four-game sweep, but who cares? Being in eighth place is a small victory for any Brooklyn Nets fans when the future looks so bleak when they traded away basically all the draft picks in the D to Barclays Center and probably half the land of Atlantic Avenue over to Boston, all for the aging Paul Pierce and uh, Kevin Garnett. You know what? We'll take it, eighth place. But on a serious note, though, um, you know, the Brooklyn Nets have been pretty impressive. And I feel like I've been saying this for a while because the Nets have a team where it's just a bunch of role players, basically. And they have enough cap space this offseason as well, too, to go and get a superstar. The problem is convincing a superstar to come to Brooklyn. And that is the hardest thing. And until they get one person to say, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go over there because they have something going on over there. The only way to prove that is by playing well this season. And I think Brooklyn's doing a good job of that. Now, unfortunately, Karis LeVert had that gruesome leg injury. And thankfully, he should be back this season. And it, it could have been a lot worse than it looked. But Karis LeVert has been playing extremely well. And Brooklyn has been waiting for him to come around. And he finally came around this season. Again, unfortunately, he's going to miss a lot of time because of the injury. But hopefully he can come back and get back on track. For Brooklyn, it's all about proving why someone should come here. And I keep saying this, and people can call me crazy. I feel like Brooklyn has a lot of good young pieces, a lot of good role players. They just need that one guy to tie everything together. The question is, who's going to take the risk and come to the Barclays Centers first? I, I love your beginning line. If you would have told me uh, that Brooklyn would be two games under 500, I would have said you were two games to start the season off. Uh, it, it's, you know, Brooklyn's got a lot of future ahead of them. And they can, right now, I, I was talking to my brother about this earlier. Other than the New York Yankees, the Brooklyn Nets are the second best New York team. And I had to take a moment for that to sink in. Like, in what year are we talking about? Uh, and so it's it's certainly been a nice surprise. Uh, they've been a lot better than the New York Knicks right now. Uh, but they're not the team that has stood out for me. Uh, that's the Sacramento Kings because they're two games over 500 at 8-6. And, and they started off 0-2. So they're really 8-4 over the last 12 games. The defense hasn't been there. Just ask when Milwaukee put up 140 plus points on them. But... Aaron Fa, 18.7 points per game, shooting over 50% from the field, 44% from three-pointers. Marvin Battle III, 40, nearly 44% from three-pointers. And you look at this roster, a lot of players, second-year guys, third-year guys. I love all these young players fit around the Sacramento Kings. Now, you know, it is... A, you know, California, but Sacramento's not getting any big-name stars coming their way. But what they are getting is a lot of top young pits. And what they are getting is those guys performing. And it just quietly, 
it without having to hear the word process reminds me of a lot about the 76ers. You, know, you trade off pieces here, you trade off pieces there, and it seems like it's finally going in the right direction. And it, it may still take a little bit more time. Uh, the Kings obviously would have a much higher draft pit the way they're playing. Uh, I don't know if they're going to be able to consistently do this long term, especially in the Western Conference. They're just going to have to play too many good teams too too often. And it's just going to result in losing. But right now, a lot of these young kids, they're seeing winning for the first time. They're seeing NBA games for the first time. And they're succeeding. And I think this is something to go off of on a real high note. The future finally looks, you know, visible if you're a Kings fan. And my God, if you're a Kings fan, it is it has been just blinding, blinding dark. I it, it looks like a bright future for the Kings. I like where they're going. An eight-and-six start, I don't think anybody really would have predicted that for the Sacramento Kings. Uh, so right now, that is my biggest surprise. All right, Jose, one team that has no excuse for where they are at right now. and uh, Let's just go with NBA only, because there's plenty of teams when we talk about all sports. <laughs> Uh, that's a very, very deep question, Nick. We can go on for hours on that question. But I'm going to go with the fifth place currently coming into tonight in the Eastern Conference, the Boston Celtics, who are sitting at 7-6, and six, just a game over 500. I am sorry. There is no excuse. And I know they have a winning record technically, and I know it could be worse, but there is no excuse why the Boston Celtics are where they are right now. And Kyrie Irving's recent comments about wishing they had a 14, 15-year veteran you know, telling them to slow down and stuff like that. You know what? I didn't criticize Kyrie for leaving Cleveland and wanting to go to Boston, but I will agree. You had a veteran like that. His name was LeBron James. You wanted to go lead your own team. Now you're in Boston with a bunch of youngsters. Step up, be a captain, and lead this team and convince them that, like you said, it's not a sprint. It's not a, it's a marathon of a season. You have 81 games to play, not seven. The playoffs don't start next week. Pace yourself. There's still plenty of time to get better. Kyrie Irving needs to step up and be a leader on this team if he wants this team to take it to the next level. They're just so talented. Terry Rozier, Jalen Brown, Gordon Hayward's back and fully healthy. Also really good to see Hayward back on his feet again with the injury last year. It's good to see him playing well again. Jason Tatum, this team is stacked. They have the best coach in the NBA, in my opinion, in Brad Stevens. There's no excuse why you're a game over 500. There's no excuse while you're in fifth place in the Eastern Conference, a LeBron James-less Eastern Conference, by the way, there should be no excuse why the Celtics don't end up with the number one seed. And by the way, in my opinion, the only reason why the Celtics weren't going to win the Eastern Conference was because of LeBron James. I'll go even further, Nick, even with the Jimmy Butler trade, even with the Kawhi Leonard trade, there is no reason with LeBron James being gone from the Eastern Conference why the Celtics should not be in the Eastern Conference Finals, and there is no reason why they should not win the Eastern Conference Finals unless someone get hurt unless someone gets hurt uh, gets hurt this year. So unacceptable by the Celtics, and again, it is unacceptable if they don't make it to the Eastern Conference Finals this year. I, I think they're easily going to make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, I think they're going to make it to the finals. Uh, I don't want to say that they certainly have a chance uh, to be the NBA champs. One team that I find that has no excuse uh, lately, the Rockets. They're six and seven. They're not even a playoff seed right now. And lately, yes, they've been playing 
much better. They got a road win uh, when they were an underdog going in Denver, which is never an easy place to win. Uh, they've played a lot of road games this season, and they're winning a lot of road games. Uh, sits in seven right now, and they're only one and four on the road. So you're talking about nine games having to play on the road to start off the season. That's going to be great long term when they have more home games to finish out their regular season. But I mean, this is a team that won what over 60 games last season. They were the top seed. They were a game away from getting to the NBA Finals. And when you think of all the top teams in the e- I'm not just saying Western Conference, in the Eastern Conference as well, the only one that downgraded was the Cleveland Cavaliers when they lost LeBron James. But the Rockets are the only team that fully downgraded. Because we knew once the Cavs, if they didn't sign LeBron James, they were done. But the Rockets, they were the only team that fully downgraded, and their one supposed upgrade was going to be Kamala Anthony, and every Knit fan in New York can basically laugh at that one. It, it is remarkable. And obviously, you know, GM for Houston is always active. He's always making trades. He's always adding pieces. He's always signing players. He's going to have a lot of work to do. Because this sits in seven start, I don't think it's going to change too much. Obviously, I think they're a playoff team, but as far as a deep run, I don't believe in that right now because they've seen all these pieces leave the Houston Rockets, and I think it's just going to be one too many for them long term. And this is really no excuse because you have guys like James Harden, you have guys like Chris Paul, Clint Capella. You have enough pieces with just those three alone that we're going. 50 plus and 5 when the three of them are on the court together. And now to start off the year, they're 6 and 7. So just an awful beginning, and Houston's going to have to do a lot to make me believe that they can be the same team that was just a game out of the finals. Really, if Chris Paul's healthy, they possibly beat the Warriors and they get to the finals last season. So there's a lot that they got to do for make me to believe in this team. And signing Carmel Anthony was the exact opposite approach to begin with it. Other players that haven't signed, Le'Veon Bell for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He will not be a Steeler the rest of the season. He will not play at all this season. And he turns down $14 million between not playing a single game for the Steelers. But instead of focusing on Bell... James Conner will be the running back for the Steelers the rest of the season. Uh, thank you for two of my fantasy teams. Uh, <laughs> but do you officially believe in James Conner and that he can go the full length of this season? As well, without Le'Veon Bell, do you view the Steelers as a true playoff team or are they in trouble when they get to the playoffs? Honestly, I think James Conner can handle the workload. Um, I think we're, we've seen it so far this year. I think he is legit. Um, I think he was a very underrated running back in college as well, too. I was very surprised that he didn't go in the first round in last year's draft. I mean, it was very QB heavy, and there wasn't a lot of room for him. Um, but, you know, James Conner, to me, is a good running back. He is an NFL running back. He's proven it. Um, he's had great success so far. Um, you know, a lot of credit does go to the Steelers' offensive line, too, though. I mean, they're a great O-line. Um, 
And when you have a good O-line like that, just ask Le'Veon Bell, it's very easy to do your job. So I think James Conner is legit NFL running back. I think the Steelers will be fine going forward and in the future with Conner as well, too. Um, you know, that's a great question, though. Are the Steelers in trouble when it comes to the playoffs? I think the Steelers will win their division easily. I think they're the best team kind of by default, even though they got off to a slow start. Um, but those other teams just aren't ready to take them down yet. You know, the Browns are still very young. Um, the Bengals, for as long as they have Marvin Lewis as a head coach, um, I don't think they'll go anywhere. And the Ravens are the Ravens in their own weird way. They're not gonna they're not gonna take down the Steelers either. So I think the Steelers are okay when it comes to the division. But I think you're right. I think they're gonna miss Le'Veon Bell's presence a little bit when it comes to the playoffs because of Connor's inexperience. But I think they can still hold their own. I'm still going to hold the Steelers' favorites in the wild card round, although I think they will run into a little bit of trouble when they face the tougher teams like the Patriots, like the Chiefs, without having an experienced running back. But I think the main thing to take away from this, though, is that even though the Bell thing you know, it seems like a lot of controversy and it seems like the Steelers are going to take a big hit, give the credit to the Steelers for drafting James Connor. Because when they drafted Connor, you can't tell me that they had this in mind, thinking, oh, maybe Le'Veon Bell won't come back after all. I think they drafted Connor in mind just in case. Um, but I think the Steelers deserve a lot of credit for taking a risk on James Connor. And I think he is an NFL, uh, a good NFL running back. I think he'll get better every single year. Um, but for right now, I think they'll win their division come the playoff time. I don't see them as a playoff favorite. Um, but even with Le'Veon Bell, I don't see the Steelers as a playoff favorite. It's tough for them to be a playoff favorite. Uh, they'll certainly not have home field against teams like the Patriots right now or Kansas City, and Kansas City put up a ton of points to them when they were in Arrowhead. They, yeah. Pittsburgh, I really like James Conner. I think he'll be fine the rest of the year, but there's certainly a lot of question marks in just those big matchups. I don't know if I trust the Steelers long-term. It's not that I don't trust the offense. I don't trust the defense. They had that nice 52 to 21 point game, but a lot of that is, you know, the offense just killed. And when the offense has games like that, yeah, it's going to be real easy on the defense. But this entire year for the Pittsburgh Steelers defense has not been good at all. Um, I don't want to say their first true test, but. It's going to be interesting to see how they do against Blake Bortles because he has struggled a lot this season. We haven't really seen Leonard Fournette out there much. Uh, the overall offense of the Jaguars has been a little bit troubling, and I, I need to see a really good defensive game from Pittsburgh to make me believe about them in the playoffs, and I don't know if I'm going to see that. Well, on Monday, we had the... What do we dub it? Uh, the Trap Bowl, pretty much. The, the crappiest game of Monday Night Football of the season. Uh, granted, it, it had its interesting moments when the you know refs were blowing the whistle every moment of the final two minutes. But the Giants beat the 49ers late in the comeback uh, of one of what will be our final memories of Eli Manning as a Giant. But... We are finally rewarded after that fun torture Monday night of a true possible Super Bowl matchup. The 9-1 Kansas City Chiefs versus the 9-1 Los Angeles Rams. And I'll say, I think this is clearly going to be the most viewed regular season game. 
talk to me all about Thanksgiving. You talk to me all about every Dallas Cowboy game. But this is 9-1 Chiefs, 9-1 Rams. The only game on a Monday night. A lot of fans should be interested in this one. A lot of fantasy football fans will be interested in this one as well. So I, I but is this are these two teams your Super Bowl favorites as of right now? Could this be our Super Bowl matchup? It could be. It won't be though. However, um, I, I agree with you 100. percent I think this is going to be a very you know popular viewed game. I think a lot of people is, this is easily going to be one of the highest rated games. Um, maybe not more than Thanksgiving because I just think people are going to have it on in the background while they're cooking and eating anyways. And Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving, but this is going to be a huge matchup. I agree with you. All eyes should be on the TV. You know, people should want to watch this game. You have two great running backs going at it with Kareem Hunt and with um, Todd Gurley. You have two of the future of the NFL and the QBs here and Patrick Mahomes, Jared Goff. Two really good defenses as well, too. And again, just like you said, it's a potential Super Bowl matchup. This can be a preview of what might happen. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, we might have to save that for another day. I cannot trust the Kansas City Chiefs to save my life. If, if Andy Reid is in a playoff game, I'm sorry. The two don't go very well. The two, you know, the two just, they don't mix very well. They're, you know, they're like a, a very bad drink that you have in a bar. It's like a very shady bar. It's like two ingredients that just don't go well together. Um, and I just can't see the Chiefs. Until I actually see the Chiefs get over that playoff hump, then I will believe it. But for right now, this is going to be a very exciting game. Again, two very young QBs, two very young running backs, two of the best defenses in the NFL entirely. So yeah, I will be watching on Monday as well, which as long as well as with a lot of people. So is it a possible Super Bowl matchup? Yes. Do I think it will be? No. Yeah, I, I think the Rams are, even with losing to the Saints, I think they're the favorite to get to the Super Bowl in the NFC. As long as there's a guy named Tom Brady, and as long as his head coach is named Bill Belichick, and as long as they both play for the New England Patriots, the favorite is always going to be the New England Patriots as far as the AFC goes every single year. As much as I love Blake Bortles, I'm always going to give it to Tom Brady, and I'm always going to give it to Bill Belichick. But other than that, this is going to be, I think, the most exciting game. Because it's exactly as you said. You have two of the best running backs. You have the two favorites for the MVP in Patrick Mahomes and in Todd Gurley. You have two of the best offenses. You have all this fantasy football behind it because of the fact that it will be close to playoff time for fantasy football fans. Uh, because of the fact that this is week 11, right before Thanksgiving. Uh, we're getting closer to Thanksgiving. Uh, so... It, there, this is everything that I think every football fan hopes to see, this type of matchup. Uh, sometimes you hope it's a little bit closer to playoffs time, but you know, this is you know still important games for both teams. Uh, mind you, more important for the Chiefs, and they're the road team because of the fact that the Chargers are breathing down their neck at 7-2 and two right now. And the Chiefs could be in a very tough situation is if they lose this game against the Rams, and then the, both teams go on the bye after this week. And the Chargers could come out right off the bat, win these next two games in a row, and be pretty much tied with the Chiefs, waiting for their matchup with the Chiefs. So I think for the Chiefs, this is a must-win game. Uh, it's not going to be an easy game for them. 
when you're going against the 9-1 Rams. But I'm certainly excited to see this matchup. Uh, are these two teams my Super Bowl favorites? I, I think on the NFC side, very much so. I, I am bored into the Rams, even with Cooper Cup out for the entire season. Uh, but I'm not dead sold on the Chiefs. But you know, this could be a different matchup for the Chiefs if they did have home field advantage. Come the number one seed against the New England Patriots, you know, we could be talking about a different thing. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are very, very good in the postseason at home. On the road, there's a couple close matchups, so you know you can easily make the case for these, both these two teams facing off each other in February, and I think every fan should be looking forward to this game. MLB has been giving out its awards. Still to come is the MVP. Uh, we spoke about that a lot more last podcast because of J.D. Martinez, but you know, one thing really stood out, uh, you know, Ronald Acuna winning Rookie of the Year. That could have gone either way with Juan Soto, uh, but Acuna was the clear favorite. Blake Snell, Jacob DeGrom, these two guys had lower than two ERAs. Uh, DeGrom just missing a unanimous, so he was one vote shy. But I, I, maybe because we're in New York, but this was a blowout. Shohei Otani beating out Miguel Andujar for the AL Rookie of the Year, and maybe because we're in New York, and maybe because Andujar is a Yankee, there's been a lot of backlash, but is this well-deserved backlash for Otani winning the Rookie of the Year award? Jose, who did you have winning it, and is this? Uh, do Yankee fans have a case? Yankee fans certainly have a case, um, and honestly, Yankee fans are just outraged because this season has just not gone well for them, right? They kicked out of the playoffs by the Red Sox. They can't take home a Rookie of the Year award. In my opinion, I don't think it should have been that much of a blowout, honestly. I think, you know, and, and I told you this before, if I had a vote, I vote for Miguel Andujar, and I understand what Otani has done, and I don't have a problem with Otani winning. But I think it should have been a lot closer, too. I know you're talking about the first person to pitch 50 innings and, like, hit 15 home runs or whatever since Babe Ruth. I understand that Otani is a hybrid. However, Otani, you know, was injured at times. He wasn't able to pitch to his full ability. But to me, for Andujar, you can't not, you know, give this guy first-place votes, too. You're talking about a Yankees team that was missing Aaron Judge for about what was supposed to be, what, three to four weeks? Ended up, what, two months without Aaron Judge? Giancarlo Stanton struggled mightily in his first year with the Yankees. Gary Sanchez hit, what, 180-something on the season? That's what he ended with as his batting average. And yet you have a guy like Miguel Andujar come in, hit over 40 doubles, you know, and have the season that he had. I don't know where the Yankees would have been if it wasn't for Miguel Andujar with Judge missing time, with Stanton slumping, with Sanchez slumping. Andujar deserves a lot of credit for the Yankees' offense this season. So again, Otani certainly deserves Rookie of the Year, too. I just don't think it shouldn't have been a landslide like it was. You know, it was interesting reading a lot about this. 10, 15 years ago, this is easy. Miguel Andujar is your winner. He leads Otani in home runs. He leads Otani in runs stored. He leads Otani in batting average. He leads Otani in RBIs. 
But we didn't really talk about this rookie of the year on our last podcast. Not because I didn't want to, but because it was just too obvious. The winner was going to be Shohei Otani. And it's not because of the fact that Shohei Otani was the biggest name. And the moment that he came into the MLB, he was automatically going to be gifted the award. No. Because if he got shell-shocked, and if he got beat down, the moment he stepped in to the MLB, he was never going to win the award. But what does he do? He has a 3.31 ERA. He goes 4-2 and two in 10 starts. He has one of the highest strikeout ratings equal to, uh, and then swing and miss percentages equal to Chris Sale when he made his starts. He threw one of the hardest pitches in the entire game as a starter. He hits 22 home runs. Not 27 like Andujar, but he hits 22 in over 200 less at-bats. Not only that, he has a higher slugging percentage than Andujar. He has a higher on-base percentage than Andujar. His slugging percentage on on on-base percentage is only 15 players in the entire MLB had a better percentage. Now, you can tell me that the MLB is a nerds game, because it is, but the nerds got it right. The better player this season was not Miguel Andujar. It was Shohei Otani. He may not have pitched for an entire season as a starter, but he put damn good numbers up if you consider him a relief pitcher for his stats. And I'm not saying view him as a relief pitcher, but he put up very good numbers for a relief pitcher average season. It's an easy choice. And the fact of the matter is, Andujar was one of the worst defensive third basemen over the last 20 years. He, had, he was ranked like, out of the last 300 plus third basemen defensively, he's ranked like 290. And I'm not talking like high 300s, I'm talking about low 300s, like maybe 310. Of the top 310 third basemen over the last 20 years, he's ranked 290 defensively. He's not up there defensively, it didn't help his case for rookie of the year. The, the nerds got it right this time. It was clear as they show Hey Otani, not because of the, not even just because of the historical presence he brought with him into the games, but the numbers he put up. He was a better player than Miguel Andujar for the entire season, and he did so in just 300 plus at bats. This was an easy decision. This and it's clear as day. It was an easy decision because he got 25 first-place votes. So, I don't get the backlash. I don't understand the backlash. Uh, that that one didn't make any sense to me. It, it was easily Otani for me winning it. And you know, I was part of the reason I didn't think we were going to discuss much about it because of how good he was this season. We're not going to talk about all the free agent teams. What we are going to do is talk about the New York teams. I really do want to get into a lot of the free agent uh, for the MLB teams. I dive into a lot of interesting ones. Uh, but unfortunately, we just, you know, we don't want to make this a three-hour-plus podcast for you guys. Uh, we'll, we'll cut it into different shows. 
But we'll start with the New York Yankees. We'll, we'll make this local for me and uh, Jose. Uh, what is it the Yankees need to look to add in the offseason, whether it be a free agent name you want to put in there or just position? But Jose, if you're Brian Cashman, what are you looking for? Well, I think it's kind of obvious when it comes to the New York Yankees. Uh, I know a lot of fans want Machado, but I think the obvious need is a starting pitcher. Um, and lucky for the Yankees, there's a flurry of options out there. You know, they bring back CC Sabathia, which I'm okay with. A one-year deal. He's going to be your fifth starter. Obviously, Severino is going to be in the rotation. Tanaka is going to be there too. But you know, that's three guys for five slots. You know, you still have Jordan Montgomery, um, and you still have a lot of other young guys, Justice Sheffield. Um, but if you're the Yankees, I think they would like to add one, if not two more pitchers. Maybe a reunion with Jay Happ would make them happy. But I do think they need that front-of-the-line starter that's going to go along with Luis Severino, and it needs to be a lefty. And I think, you know, when you narrow it down, guys like Dallas Keigel, um, Patrick Corbin, but most importantly, I think the Yankees should try and look to do a trade with the Seattle Mariners for James Paxton. I think if James Paxton is available, he is better than almost any free agent pitcher available on the market. Dallas Keigel wouldn't be so bad either, although I would worry about Dallas Keigel giving up a lot of home runs in Yankee Stadium. But I think you can't go wrong with one of the lefties that are on the market, whether it's signing Corbin or signing Keigel or trading for a guy like James Paxton for the Yankees. I think the uh, the need is very obvious, and I think it's a left-handed starting pitcher, preferably a front and a, a front end, you know, a 1A to Luis Severino. Yeah, uh, pitching for me, I, I, it's, I, I agree with you. It's, where are we going to put an offensive piece at this point? Uh, the DH is the only thing that they have to fit, and that could be majority Gary Sanchez at times because, of, you know, he's not the greatest um, with his bat. You can argue with me at first base and say Luke Volk is not an everyday first baseman. And as he's much not. as much as I would agree with you there, uh, your other choices, your best one available becomes Matt Adams or Lucas Duder. Justin Bohr can be debatable, but there's a most likely chance he'll be still a Philly uh, going into the free agent market. Uh, if you're going to trade for a first baseman, they certainly have the pieces to trade for a Paul Goldsmith. I don't know if they're going to go that route, uh, but I mean, I would hate to see that because I really like Paul Goldsmith and hate to root against him at that point. Uh, but for me, I agree with you. It's starting pitching. I, I really like if I'm targeting a pitcher, I'm actually looking at Gio Gonzalez. He's a guy that also has a lot of playoff experience. He's been playing with the Washington Nationals. He was traded to the Milwaukee Brewers. We've seen the Yankees do that before with a left-handed pitcher. Get traded to Milwaukee, then get shipped off to New York uh, in free agency. Uh, that was really CC Sabathia. Uh, but as well, bullpen. You know, Chapman didn't miss a little bit of time. Batances isn't always that everyday closer. They traded for Zach Brennan. Zach Brennan's a free agent. Yankees have been known to have all the bullpen pieces in the world, and I think they're going to still need a bullpen piece come, uh, you know, opening day, because of the fact Zach Britton and David Robinson both free agents. There's a ton 
of relief pitching options for them. That doesn't mean they have to go and get the best relief pitcher like a Craig Kimball, but they can just fill the guys with the right necessary pieces, add an extra bullpen guy or two. I think you got to do that if you're a Yankees because if you're going into this year and you've lost Zach Britton and David Robinson, yeah, you've got two top bullpen pieces, but these were f- two of your top four guys. These were guys you were relying on pretty much your what you were expecting to rely on the entire postseason, a lot of the regular season at times. Expect the Yankees to do the same thing that we've seen them do the last couple of years, and that's basically upgrade their bullpen. They're going to do that again in this offseason because they just lost too many bullpen pieces to not have to do that again. And for the New York Mets, Jose, I know... We can get into this one because this one will be a lot of fun. What do they got to do? Well, uh, sell the franchise? No. Um, <laughs> although there's a series of things, I have a list for them to do. Um, honestly, to me, the Mets can really make an impact with this reliever market. Um, and honestly, it's not just signing one guy. I think the Mets really need to dive in and sign one or two pitchers off this packed relief market. And honestly, it may be pricey because so many teams need relief pitchers, but the Mets need to just shut it, you know, throw the money at some guys and bring in some really good relievers. Honestly, this Mets team was so weird, right? They started out 11-1 or whatever they started out, and then they had that terrible May, June, July like they always do. But the Mets really had one of the better records in MLB from the All-Star break on. And if the Mets win just half of the games that they lost in the month of June— the Mets have a lot better record. I don't know if they're in the wild card scenario, but maybe they are in the wild card race at the end of the year. You know, if they give, if they win a couple more of those games that Degrom leaves in the seventh or the eighth inning, all of a sudden they have a lot more wins to their total. The Mets' glaring weak spot, and you know, the Mets have a lot of problems. I mean, all jokes aside, they really do. But they have enough talent in their pitching staff with the starters and some young pieces in offense that if they just had a decent bullpen. They would win a lot of these games that they're still losing 1-0, 2-1, giving up an 8th inning home run here, losing the lead in the ninth inning here, instead of, you know, coming out on the short end of those games. Now, they are guys available. I think they definitely need a closer. I know you're not too big on the one guy pitching the ninth inning, but I think they do need somebody that can shut the door in the ninth inning because they have a flexible guy like Gazelman who can pitch those 7th, 8th innings. So if it is Craig Kimbrell, I think it's a little bit too pricey for my opinion. I think I like guys like Adamata Vino who can come in here and be a really good relief pitcher. But they need at least two guys, not just one reliever. They really need two relievers to help stabilize this bullpen. They need a lot. Let's start with the basics. Um, <laughs> oh, he has a list. I do have a list. Uh, you know, obviously, if I'm looking at this team, and there's a few big question marks. Catcher, first base, third base, obviously, and bullpen. It Pete was, Alonso, my friend. Pete Alonso. Pete Alonso. I don't deny that. But is he playing this season? And if so, is it better for the Mets to sign a long-term third baseman then? So... My scenario is, if it is Peter Alonso, he's not starting opening day. I highly doubt that. Just on the basis of nobody starts opening day, they hold him out for a month, and then they get him an extra year. So, we can assume that for the most part. 
that leaves it to Dominic Smith or Todd Frazier for first base. Now, I'm hoping that's their decision, that they do a combo there of those two men, and that leaves third base open for a long-term contract with Mike Moustakis. And that's the first big name I'm looking to add. Because bullpen, I agree, the Mets are going to have to add a ton of bullpen pieces. But I think the first thing that they should add is a bat. Because the offense was dreadful last season. And the offense is going to still be dreadful unless they add some bats. And I think Mike Moustakis is a perfect fit. You know, he's a guy that hits for power. He can hit both sides. He doesn't strike out. And that was the whole thing for the Mets. Guys that don't strike out, now they have guys that strike out. And I think that's just going to be more of a struggle, whereas a guy like Moustakis can really put in some extra help. They're already going to have a lot of question marks with Jay Bruce, with Todd Frazier, with Dominic Smith, where to put these guys. But if you add the right pieces already and you have a guaranteed position spot, you can worry about all those other guys and see if you can trade them for nothing. Nick, let me stop you right there for one sure. second. If you're the Mets, do not sign Mike Moustakis. Wait one more year and go all in on Nolan Arenado. That is my solution. I don't think that's a solution, though. Why is that not a solution? You're going to deny one of the best third basements in the game? We're going to assume one of the best third basements in the game are going to be a free agent. We're going to He's s- not signing an extension in Colorado. There's Come on. There's a possibility that he does. No way. Still there is no way. Nick, I promise you, if he does not, if he signs an extension, I will shave my head bald. If he signs an extension during the, uh, during, during the, the year, during the season. Uh, folks, this isn't the first one that Jose's put his <laughs> hair on the line for. Uh, his other one was Sam Bradford. Uh, starting all six team games. I think that's every single year that one is on. And that that one came pretty close. He almost started all sixteen games that year. I put it on the line. I yeah, was really yeah. scared. Four four <laughs> weeks later, he was out for the season. Yeah. <laughs> but so I think that's a running consistency on Sam Bradford. Uh, this is a different one for us uh, with Nolan Arenado. That I'll be sure to hold him to. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'll risk my hair or just wait for it all to just, you know, fall off eventually. <laughs> but the problem with waiting for Nolan Arenado is you're, you're waiting for Nolan Arenado. And it sounds silly, but there's no guarantee that he'll be there. There's no guarantee that you wind up with him. You know what there is a guarantee of? That Mike Christakis is a free agent. That you can go out and sign him because the team, the Milwaukee Brewers, really don't have an open spot for him. And there was a ton of infielders in Milwaukee that they really don't need him as much as, as, as great as he was. But it's the perfect fit to go to the Mets, to work with them, and to figure out what the hell ever you, you want to do at first base till Peter Alonso gets there. Obviously, they're going to sign bullpen pieces. I don't really care. I'd love it to be the big name guys. I'd love it to be a Trimble. I'd love it to be a Britain. I'd love it if they had money to do so, but we can hope for a different day. If I can get me Stotis, that's a winner. But catcher, I think, is the big question as well. You know, when you look at catchers, do you want... Do you want... It's really... Oh, man. Do you want Thomas Nitto, Kevin Poecki, Travis Darno, 
or do you want a guy that should be, or what, Devin Mazarash was also a free agent, so I can't include him on that one, but it's Jonathan Rutoy, Wilson Ramos, Devin Mezzarato, Yasmani Grandel, Matt Wieters, and Brian McCann are all free agents. There is no reason why the Mets should wind up with Devin Mezzarato and Travis Darno and Kevin Pulecki. They should be getting a much bigger upgrade at catch. For years, we heard the Mets were going to trade for Jonathan Rutoy. Now they get a chance to sign him. Wilson Ramos is one of the best consistent catchers, and he hit extremely well for Philadelphia. He hit extremely well for Washington. He's a possibility. Yasmani Grandel is one of the most power-hitting catchers in the MLB. He should be an option. Matt Wieters can't stay healthy. He didn't have a great season for Washington, but he didn't play that many games for Washington. There are so many different options for the Mets to consider than what they had last season at catcher. And catcher could be the biggest key for them because instead of pass balls, instead of guys that they can't have throwing out guys, stealing second base, and guys calling the game for these starters, this is the perfect fit. And I think catcher should be a choice. And I hate, I hate considering catcher a choice. If there's one position I hate considering anything of value, it's catcher. The Mets need a catcher. The Mets need their value in a catcher, and I think the Mets need to consider long-term value in a third baseman. That's what I'm really looking at for the New York Mets. Jose, any thoughts on that one? No, I'm just looking for haircut places, possibly, because I might have made a mistake, but I will stick to it. <laughs> We'll we'll get the flip, we'll do the razor on the live show. We'll do yeah we'll do a we'll do a live feed. Ho- on, hopefully uh, on that's our one. Page. Hopefully that's one where we can get the actual video going. <laughs> um, all right, final question for the podcast episode thirty one. Miami Marlins obviously were a complete fire sale and a complete joke, and the Mets almost had a worse record than the Marlins last season, uh, but. Who is this year's Marlins fire sale team in your eyes? To me, I think it's going to be the Arizona Diamondbacks. I think they made it very clear that people are available. They picked up the option on Paul Goldschmidt, although it's no guarantee they sign an extension. Um, you know, AJ Pollock is already a free agent. I think if you're the Diamondbacks, it's very frustrating what's unfolded over the past couple of years, right? They've always just been so close, but they can't get over that hump of getting out of the first round in the playoffs. This year, they fell apart in the month of September. And I just feel like they have so much money committed to certain guys that they could probably benefit from blowing things up down there. So whether it's trading Paul Goldschmidt, trading Nick Ahmed, I think Zach Greinke is gone this year. Um, if you trade the right pieces, I think it could be a simple fix and build around guys like David Peralta. Or... If you're in a Diamondbacks and you really feel like you need to do an entire rebuild, you trade guys like David Peralta and just try and get as much back as you can possible. But I would be very, very surprised if the Diamondbacks didn't make a couple of trades this offseason. You know, it's, it's tough if you're the Diamondbacks because it doesn't seem like when they do make trades, they get the better end of it. I'm going to give a different team, and I, I don't know. I don't know which team is going to be a fire sale, but if you had to tell me which team is 
bad that desperately needs to fix their issues. Give me the Detroit Tigers. Uh, they have Michael Fulmer, but I think he's going to be traded at this point. There's been debate about it for the last couple of seasons, how they really should look to try and piece him together with another option. Jordan Zimmerman, you know, he didn't pitch that great these last couple of seasons, but 131 innings, 4.52 ERA. There's got to be some hope in him eventually, but I don't know where to expect on him. Miguel Cabrera, Nicholas Castellanos, all different options, and John Hitz. You know, he was a catcher, he spent time injured, can play first base as well. They don't have many pieces, Detroit, but they got enough pieces to say, hey, we've got to sell these players. We got to try and trade Miguel Cabrera. We got to try and trade our third basemen. We got to try and trade our catchers because they're not going to be here when we finally get a team together. We got to try and trade Shane Green in the biggest relief pitching market just because most likely he's a cheaper option than other teams have. And there are teams like the Mets that will take the cheap option. I think Detroit's going to be that sell team because. 64 wins, 98 losses. They finished, I think, third in the AL Central last season. They're not a good team. They're not improving. They're not getting better. And there's just no way they're going to get any better when teams like the Chicago White Sox are improving. The Cleveland Indians are getting better. The Minnesota Twins, you expect to be on the rise again. And then there's the Kansas City Royals, who basically had their great moments and then are towards the end. So I think Detroit's going to be my sell team. As much as I'd like to say Arizona, like a lot of fan favorites, I think Detroit finally takes and doesn't get much for their players, but tries to just trade off the salary as much as they can. And as every week, we have our dude and dunce of the week and beard bat. And for our beard bat, we're going to go to 1993. Uh, the year I was born, uh, Don Schuler becomes the coach with the most wins in NFL history. Uh, he finished his career with 328 wins. Uh, Bill Belichick close by in third at 257. I would have figured it was higher than that, but I just didn't include a lot of the playoff wins in there. But Don Schuler, uh, congratulations on that. That was in 1993, as he has the most wins in NFL history. And our dude of the week, you know, I was looking at it. I was going to give it to Zach Ertz, but in going through a ton of guys' numbers, it's going to be Nick Chubb, 209 total yards, two touchdowns, a lot of that coming off a 90-plus yard uh, rushing touchdown. But Nick Chubb is our dude of the week the second round draft pitch for the Cleveland Browns, and who's really taken over as the starting running back since Carlos Hyde was traded to the Jaguars. And with that, Jose, who is our dunce of the week? Well, our dunce of the week is also a running back. It's going to be Le'Veon Bell. After reported that he was going to at least report to the Steelers, still not knowing if he was going to play, now they're saying he's not going to play at all. And let me just get one thing straight. I totally understand what Le'Veon Bell is trying to do. 
He's trying to get this new contract. He doesn't want to injure himself and cost him future money. I have no problem with people trying to get their money for what they're worth. For years, I've said it on my radio show and in other podcasts, Nick, that the Steelers should just give Le'Veon Bell a new deal, stop franchise tagging him. It's not right to Bell. I get all that. I'm on his side with that. But at some point, this comes across as selfish. You not showing up every single week while your teammates do. Guys who make less than you. And, and yes, granted, they make less than him because they're not the star player that he is. But when they're showing up and they care more than you do and they've asked you and they've expressed their desires saying, you know, this is, you know, it's not right that you're hanging out and doing nothing and leaving the team when they need you the most. Like you said, if Le'Veon Bell is there, they're a playoff contender. When he's not there, they're not the same team. And I understand he's trying to get his point across, but at some point, you're just being a bad teammate, leaving your teammates hanging out there high and dry. They moved on. They've said bye to Le'Veon Bell, and he's going to part ways too, and him and the Steelers are not going to reunite ever again, and that's fine. But at some point, you're being a really bad teammate. And I'll bring up a tweet that Le'Veon Bell had tweeted, I think, last year or the year before that came up with ESPN the other day, when he said, if you're sitting out and you're not hurt, or if something else is preventing you from playing, then you don't love the game. Well, Le'Veon Bell, you don't love the game. It's hard to be called selfish when you're giving up 14 plus million, though. I mean, I, again, I, I understand. But at some point, you're being a bad teammate. You're leaving Ben Roethlisberger high and dry. You're leaving Antonio Brown high and dry. You're leaving all these other players. Just, you're just leaving your team behind, which to me is not right. I take a lot of pride in, like, you know, if I was a sports athlete, I'd want to be a great teammate. Um, you know, they have no control over your salary. I'm sure if it was up to them, they'd pay you all the money that you want because they want you back. But at some point, punishing your teammates is not fair to try and get your point across. Le'Veon Bell pits up our dunce of the week. Nick Chubb pits up our dude of the week as our podcast episode 31 is coming to an end. And with that... Uh, final thoughts, Jose, do you have any final thoughts of upcoming games this week or anything uh, to final with? Um, you know, not too much. Again, I'm very excited for the Monday night matchup. I don't want to look past, you know, this weekend's matchups. Um, but all eyes are on the Rams and the Chiefs. Um, great job by the NFL moving that game after they said that there was terrible field conditions. Um, so good job by the NFL to not be money hungry and keep that game in Mexico City. I'm going to try and stick with another one for NCAA basketball. Uh, trying to stay a little bit more involved with basketball. Michigan picking up uh, the win 73-46 over Villanova. The 18-seed Michigan over the 8-seed Villanova. And, you know, this is a big time for Michigan. One, not only just getting that win, but Michigan already is at the 4-seed uh, in the college football standings, they got a great chance to get into the college playoffs as far as football goes. Last season, a lot of high expectations from the basketball squad when it came to March Madness tournament. And for them to kick off their season, getting a win against the eighth seed, uh, getting eighth-ranked Villanova, this is a huge moment for Michigan. Uh, and it's, I think it's finally coming together after years of when they signed John Halbar. We've seen them miss constantly just falling short against naturally ranked teams. And 
So I'm very high on Michigan right now, and it's interesting to see how far they can go and how exciting of time it is for these Michigan fans. Once again, thank you for listening to Saras on the Beard podcast, episode 31. I am Nick Sarasso. He is Jose Rivera, a.k.a. The Talking Beard. Thank you again for listening. And next podcast, we're going to try and get out next week as well, as we'll be trying to talk about more about the MLB free agents as we're getting closer to that. Uh, maybe we'll talk about some of the MLB awards if there's a big shocker. Hopefully, J.D. Martinez pulls out the AL MVP just out of spite for not being on that three-team ballot, but we're not going to get into that one again. Uh, thank you again for listening to Saras and Beard Podcast, Episode 31. Are you still mixing station gas and oil for your string trimmer, leaf blower, or chainsaw? Eliminate the mess and the guesswork with True Fuel, the original pre-mixed two-cycle fuel. True Fuel is ethanol-free and precision-engineered for small engines, improving performance, and extending the life of your outdoor power equipment. And True Fuel is available for both two- and four-cycle engines. Empower your equipment with True Fuel. Available at your local home and garden center today.